Something memorable happened in December 1903. December 17, somebody knows the answer, and if I pause long enough, you'll get the answer. Google working for you yet? You have Wikipedia open? December 17, 1903. I know there's something about this story of that day, and I could not remember what it was. It's been bothering me for years. I've been looking through my notes, searching files and databases online. What is the trouble with the story from Anonymous, December 17, 1903? Anonymous. That's a person we'll all meet in eternity. Anonymous. Anonymous says that on December, December 17, Orville and Wilbur Wright made their first flight of an airplane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It's their fifth attempt, and the plane succeeded at a 12-second flight. Wilbur Wright rushed to the local telegraph office, and he sent this following message. We have flown for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas. The family took the telegram to the newspaper office in their hometown in Ohio. They told the editor of this new flying machine and that the brothers would be home for Christmas. Two days later, the local paper in Ohio placed the following headline on page six of the paper. Wright Brothers, home for Christmas. Absolutely the right story, wrong headline. This is how Anonymous tells the story. Only it's more complicated than that. Something about this report from Anonymous had me cautious a dozen years ago. So I ran it through Snopes, you know, the fact-checking fact place, the place where we go to sort out urban myths and interweb rumors. So I run it through Snopes. And the rumor specialist told me, quote, this is a story about the Wright brothers' home for Christmas, a popular headline by inspirational speakers, clergy. Not true. There's something wrong with the headline? What actually happened when the Wright brothers completed their flight is they walked four miles to the closest telephone line and they sent a telegraph back home to their hometown in Dayton, Ohio. They knew the importance of what had just happened and they wanted their own hometown news carrier to break the story first. So they walked the four miles and with a telephone line, they sent a telegraph to, from Norfolk, Virginia to their hometown newspaper in Ohio. So far, so good, right? Are we tracking? Because when the editor of the Ohio newspaper received that telegram and read they were in flight for 59 seconds, he said, 59 seconds? If it had been 59 minutes, we would have something to report. He crumpled up the telegraph and threw it into the trash. That headline never made it in the hometown newspaper that day. Except back in Virginia, a Snoopy someone had intercepted the historic information from the telegraph that that went to press. We, we have electronic identity theft. They had telegram theft. An opportunistic reporter took the information from the telegraph in Virginia, and he went to press in Virginia the morning after the historic flight. Here's part of the story. Flying machine soars three miles in teeth of high wind over sand, hills, and waves. This became the source of the story picked up by the Associated Press. The newspaper back home in Ohio, they had thrown the story in the trash. But four other newspapers published a story and a headline that was, according to Orville Wright, 99% rubbish. And he used a more creative word than that. The rubbish account, it goes like this, quote, the mile was covered and then Orville Wright declared that the invention was a success. 
but it was not until the third mile he had accomplished and the inventor cast his eyes about for a suitable landing and he found it with his invention under utmost control. Slowly it neared the earth and he let his machine alight as easily and gracefully as a bird. From the U.S. Library of Congress archives, however, go librarians, from the archives, here's the actual telegram. Success four flights Thursday morning, all against 21 mile wind, started from level with engine power alone, average speed through air, 31 miles, longest flight, 59 seconds, inform press, home Christmas. The hometown newspaper editor, he went to the trash and retrieved the original telegraph from the Wright brothers, and he got a story in his own newspaper. It's the right story, the wrong headline everywhere. In fact, it's the right story and the wrong details everywhere. Throw anonymous in the mix, and we get the, a great miniseries, actually. Today, Christmas Sabbath, we rest in a great announcement in reality that Jesus, the Savior, is born. Jesus is Lord. It's the right story, and it's a reliable headline. That's the way I summarize the story. What's your headline for Christmas Sabbath? What is the headline of your Christmas Day story? For several weeks, we sat with the prophet Isaiah during Advent, and we listened to the cries of hope coming from his community and anticipation waving all the way to the manger in Bethlehem. Today, you heard read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people are walking in darkness. They've seen a great light, a light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Down to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's plan for the people, or the people are, are alive. A, a baby is born, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The early church takes up these titles as a way to bear witness to Jesus, and we're still working on them 2,000 years later. The baby Jesus, this God-filled baby lying in the straw, Jesus governs. The Isaiah passage is a well-known oracle. It's a liturgy, really. It's a celebration for a new king. Royal titles, these are words of hope, and they usher in a new era. We could spend time, hours, months, really, studying each of these honor titles. And by the way, that's a good suggestion for your study group or your personal time in the new year, maybe for us for Advent next year. I could recommend a little book with, with a study guide if you're interested in this subject, Names for Messiah, a Brueggemann book. Why spend time on these titles for Jesus? It's interesting, our Christmas carols, they brim with royal imagery. And that imagery comes from these passages of scripture we've been reading all month long. When we conclude worship today, we will sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. This, by the way, is our most shared Christmas song of 2020, recorded by Lucas and the worship team. It's so fantastic. Let earth receive her king. Why does it matter, the titles we give Jesus? Because the kingdom follows the king. The character of the king becomes the experience in the kingdom. And this is the new order that replaces the old order. This, by the way, is not the conventional royal expectation. 
We catch this as we keep reading the Christmas story, by the way. If we move back to Matthew chapter 2, that's where we were reading for Christmas Eve. Matthew 2, right after Mary and Joseph find out they're pregnant with God, they're warned that they're in Herod's territory. And Herod is sometimes mean and sometimes mad and sometimes both at the same time and highly disturbed. Herod, he spills his disposition all over the kingdom. As Herod goes, the nation goes. When Herod's anxious, everyone's anxious. Why does it matter that there's a new king in town? There are two short verses in the Christmas story when everything is calm and hopeful and charged with possibility. These are my two favorite verses of any version of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are the travelers from the East. Joy and generosity, contentment and calm, worship, a decision in the moment to praise God. This is what happens in the new kingdom. It's an unconventional kingdom. It's a kingdom they've not planned for or practiced, and it's radically other. Notice when Herod is absent in the scene. Notice the absence of threat. For this scene in the story, there is no threat to anyone's well-being. The kingdom follows the king. Wonderful counselor. By the way, please notice when Handel's Messiah repeats these titles. It's wonderful. Da, 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 counselor. Da. That's not actually the way this, the Bible story goes. Wonderful counselor is one title. That's okay. We'll give Handel some creative license. Wonderful counselor. That's an agent of extraordinary policies. Mighty God. A power over thriving, everlasting father, a consistent, reliable caretaker of the family, prince of peace, a commander of wellness. That's one way to understand these titles, but we could work on these a lot longer. The way the stories go throughout all time and all places, however, is that fortune and fame come to kings who stir up the peace, kings who win battles and take war prizes. But Isaiah summarizes the qualities of this king by saying, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice for eternity. The kingdom follows the king. It's not a conventional royal expectation. It's not something that people planned for or were prepared for. God filling a baby, laying in the straw. If you were with us for the Lord's Prayer series we did before Advent, we unpacked the essence of this kingdom of God that Jesus brings. It's a complete upset to status quo and to our planned lives. In other words, the coming of Jesus even upsets us, those of us waiting for his arrival, because we've already adapted and patterned ourselves so much to this world. When the unconventional kingdom of Jesus arrives, we may be a little put out. It, it upsets us. It upsets us when things become unfamiliar. We feel entitled to know our way around. Our friend Gary Chartier said this the first week of Advent, and I've been thinking about it all month. We feel entitled to know our way around for familiar things to be as they should be. We've come to expect our lives will be as we've ordered them. We feel entitled to know. 
Think about this with me for a minute. We know our routines. We know our people. We know our playtimes and our work schedules and our Sabbath. We know the route to the beach, and we know the quickest route home during rush hour. We know the airline we fly when we want to get back home to family or our home country. We know which aisle holds the peanut butter at Costco and which therapist will listen to us next month. We know the podcast that's going to drop next week. We're already subscribed and ready to go. We know our way around and we feel entitled that things are familiar. Look, here's a small example. We bought a live Christmas tree a month ago. Our usual fire station charity Christmas tree stand, they had suspended their services this year, so we end up at the local Home Depot. We end up there. And we bought a grand fur, we bring it home, we placed it in the water. It drank no water day one, day two, day three, then the needles are starting to drop on the floor. It should drink water on the first day, right? That's how it works for you too. So I concluded we've purchased an old tree. I'm going to take it back. That idea was met with some um, mocking in my home, if I'm honest. You can't return a Christmas tree. You can't. I said you can. Really? You can. What are you going to do? Haul it all the way there and they might tell you no. Well, they sold us an old tree, and I'd like a fresh one. So the tree went on top of the car. I drove it back to the store. I stood in line, and I told the clerk, I have a Christmas tree to return. She said, what? I said, the tree. It wasn't drinking water since we brought it home. It's not thriving. It's dropping its needles. It's old, and I'd, I'd like a new tree. I'd like a healthy tree. And she said, I'm not sure we do that. To which I said, you do. You have a nursery, and the policy is that they'll return plants in the nursery if they don't thrive. As long as I bring my receipt back, what is it, 14 days or something like that? You, you do take this back. It's essentially, it's essentially a plant that died three days after I took it home. She turned her back on me, picked up the phone, called her supervisor, put her chin down, talked real quiet. I have a lady here who thinks she can return a Christmas tree. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We do? How, how, how would I ring this up? I know they'll take it back because that's what they do at the nursery. I know my way around the nursery. And, and if they hadn't taken it back, I would be troubled and irritated and a little bit offended. Thank you. I got a new fresh Christmas tree. See, we feel, we feel entitled to know our way around the world and how the world should work for us. In the first months of the new year, we're going to dig deeper into this entitlement idea and what it means. The month of January, we'll talk about the idea of truth. In the month of February, Black History Month, we, we feel entitled to know our way around and we're troubled. We're actually put out when things get rearranged. We know what our body is capable of, what our mind can do. We know our skills and our marketable employment. We feel entitled for these realities to be as they are. We know who we like, we know who we don't. We particularly know who we're against and who we might hate, and, and we know which stories we trust and which truths we believe. And, and then we organize our lives accordingly. We feel entitled for things to go as we've arranged them. When they don't, we're put out, miffed, offended, angry, irritable, yes. And, and then all of my energy goes to, to rearrange the forces around me so that I can have my familiar routine returned to me. We feel entitled to know our way around. Well, friends, this Christmas Sabbath, we are inside a story we do not order. 
We are inside the story of Jesus the Lord, inside a story where the kingdom follows the king. Expect the furniture to be rearranged. Expect to be put out a little. Expect that we'll need to be adjusted again and again. At the end of Matthew's story, Jesus will tell the people, keep watch with me for the surprising presence of God, Matthew 24. We don't keep watch if things will go according to plan. We don't need to keep watch if things will remain familiar and ordered. We keep watch because the presence of God will catch us by surprise. The presence of God, it is the story. The God-filled baby lies in the manger. This is the headline. Remember this Christmas Sabbath that when God wants to get our attention, it's not by sending poverty and droughts and war and earthquake and tsunami and pandemic. We often put those experiences in the middle of the story and then try to understand God from the lens of all these trials. No, 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 no. When God wants to get our attention, it won't be by sending trials and troubles. When God wants to get our attention, God sends Jesus. The kingdom, the government will be on his shoulders. Shoulders that do not collapse, that do not barter, that do not surrender the people. And of this government, there will be no end. Amen. Amen.